I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host. And this week, it was a super fun episode to record. To give you a bit of context, this was recorded outside. We could call it our outdoor studio, if you like. As Tristan and I sat there in the long grasses recording this episode, we had flies, we had insects, we had spiders crawling in and out the podcast equipment. It was a very novel and unique way to have recorded a podcast. So my guest, I've alluded to him, his name is Tristan Gooley. He's also known as the Natural Navigator. His website is naturalnavigator.com. He's the author of four books, two of them I read very recently, The Natural Navigator and The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs. But he's also written How to Read Water, published in 2016, and more recently, Wild Signs and Star Paths, that was released, I believe, in July. And they are brilliant books. I really recommend that you check out the show notes and read those books if this is an area that's going to interest you. But Tristan has also written for the Sunday Times, for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, and many other publications He's led expeditions across five continents, climbed mountains in Europe, Africa and Asia. He's sailed boats across oceans, pilots aircraft across Africa and the Arctic. He's walked with, studied the methods of the Tuareg, the Bedouin and the Dayak, and they are tribes that reside in some of the remotest regions on Earth. So he has done an incredible amount. He's also the only living person to have flown solo and sailed single-handedly across the Atlantic. He's a fellow of the Royal Institute of Navigation and the Royal Geographical Society and vice chairman of the UK's largest independent travel company, Trailfinders, which is interesting where I found him. I found a talk online when I was searching for something and I came across a talk that he'd recorded for Trailfinders and that had been published as a podcast. So that is my route to Tristan. So enjoy this episode. We're going to talk all about what drives him, what natural navigation is, how is it relevant for the busy professionals, the type of people like you who are listening to this podcast? You know, why is this stuff relevant? We've got smartphones that can tell us which way to go. We've got Google Maps that can help us out. So why do we need to know how to be able to read water and pick up on signs that nature and the environment's giving us about which way is south, for example, and more pertinently, perhaps, which way is home or which way is the car? So I think you're going to find this really interesting. If this isn't a topic that immediately jumps out at you, bear with, because I think Tristan can help bring it to life for you. So check out the show notes for anything that we refer to in this episode and enjoy. Tristan Gooley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. So we've just spent this, a bit of context for our listeners, the last three or four hours, in fact, we're recording from our open air studio, spent the last three or four hours on one of your courses in Sussex learning how to do natural navigation, which has been absolutely amazing. And we'll talk more about that later. But as a boy, is this something you wanted to do? Were you interested in natural navigation from a very young age? Or what's your story into this? I didn't really understand the word navigation, let alone natural navigation. I was, I was a restless kid. I'd see a hill and think it might be more fun at the top than the bottom, see a lake and want to get across it. And the hills became mountains and the lakes became oceans. And I realised that navigation is the it's the beautiful art and science of being able to shape your own journey. I often say that every single journey we go on our whole lives, we're either passengers or navigators. Mm. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a passenger, but it's quite nice to occasionally choose to be a navigator. And to do that in any context, you have to have some skills. So long before I understood the word navigation, I realized that 
I wanted to, to shape the journeys. In a way, it was something I, I felt more passionate about than the destination. Mm. Some people are passionate about kit. So in the sailing world, some people spend their whole time obsessing about bits of kit on a boat um, or the boat itself. And that, that never really interested me. I was much more interested in, in the early days, looking at a chart and thinking, wow, that's where I'd go and this is how I would get there. And that was really what I felt passionate about from a young age. Mm. Weirdly, I think the thing that was the big change for me was that I realized in about my late 20s that the scale of a journey doesn't actually have a huge influence on the satisfaction we get from it, physically or philosophically. And I found I was doing these quite quite big expeditions, crossing oceans and climbing big mountains and that sort of thing. But I didn't get the same thrill I had done as a kid. And that's what led to natural navigation because I came across it by chance in probably my mid-20s. And I suddenly realized that trying to cross a very small patch of land just using the stars as my compass and the trees as my map and the wildflowers and the birds felt, I was maybe 25, 26 when I first tried it, and it felt like being 10 again. Mm. It, It felt like finding my way using the feel of the wind on my face felt more exhilarating, more exciting, more challenging, more rewarding than staring at a whole load of kit, you know, somewhere above the North Atlantic. And at that moment, I was pretty much smitten and I hadn't really looked back. And how old were you then? Well, I did my first expeditions when I was 10, but the tipping point towards natural navigation was mid to late 20s. It didn't happen overnight, but it it gripped me. The idea gripped me pretty much straight away, but it didn't displace everything else I was doing straight away, mm. partly because I'd committed to some fairly major expeditions. It took me seven years planning and preparation and training to take on the double of flying solo and then sailing single-handed across the Atlantic. And during this time, I'd become aware that those were satisfying challenges, but they weren't quite as interesting as walking five miles across a wild patch of Britain. So I was caught in this slightly surreal trap of pursuing my dream in one sense, but knowing my future lay in a slightly different direction. Mm. Which I think a lot of people listening will identify with. What is it about natural navigation that you really you enjoyed? Is it that because in many ways you are disconnected from technology from all the sort of trappings and the kit and all that that kind of stuff and you're very much on your own was it a solitary kind of endeavor is that one of the things that attracted you to it or what was it i definitely wasn't attracted by the fact that it was solitary it was for a while and i i'd got used to the idea and to be honest this is something that i've noticed over my life is that quite often i do things that my mates around me don't instantly leap with enthusiasm for and so i'd got used to the idea that this might be just something i'd do on my own and it would be a hobby and there were a couple of times when I was explaining some of this stuff. I remember lying on a beach in Turkey with a few mates and we'd been sailing. And I was just, I thought, well, I'm just going to while away a bit of time as we lie on this beach. And I just started explaining how you can find north using various constellations. And suddenly an hour had passed. And I realized that actually the interest of the people around me was genuine. They knew me far too well to humor me. They would have been rude pretty early on if they weren't interested. And then that happened a few more times. And then the thought occurred to me, maybe I'm not the only person in the world who finds this stuff interesting. And then I decided to kind of take a bit of a leap and I decided to create a school in inverted commas, which is, it was really me freelancing as an instructor. But I rented some space in the Royal Geographical Society. I put together a very basic couple of pages of a website and sent out a press release saying, I'm going to teach these skills that I've been putting together for a a decade by that point, I think. And uh, I genuinely feared it being another solitary experience instead of being on a mountain or on a small boat by myself, I thought I'd be standing in a room in the Royal Geographical Society on my own. And the opposite happened. And so I'd feared a solitary experience. And that was 10 and a bit years ago, I think now. 
and the opposite has happened. I, I'm delighted to be able to kind of share these skills through books because the courses aren't, I sadly have to say no to most people who ask to come on a course because there hasn't been a space on a public course since then. I was just, yeah, I was hugely grateful because, as I say, I didn't think there'd be much interest in and there was. And why do you think that is? Or actually before that, what type of people are interested? Two of the most gratifying and rewarding aspects of natural navigation for me are, one, the breadth of the subject. So I can be doing geology one day, astronomy the next, botany the day after that, looking at the way people move in towns and cities the day after that. And the other aspect is that it appeals to a very broad, pretty much total spectrum of people. There are certain, I know because I work with them occasionally and spend quite a lot of time with them, you know, certain aspects of nature attract certain types of people. You know, birders are, are slightly different to people who are fascinated by fungi, in my experience. And it's not a better worse thing. They just, these are just, you know, nature tribes, if you like. Whereas natural navigation, because it's, it's about understanding a bit of everything and how they fit together to make a map and how we, how we make sense of our surroundings using these clues and signs through that aspect it attracts everybody the only the only really defining feature is a a broad-minded curiosity and interest in the outdoors you know those are the only things that i mean i've run a course where people were the desks had space for two people and i remember it very clearly i was going around at the start of the course asking people you know what are you doing what are your interests and the first person said i'm a landscape artist i've been painting landscapes for 25 years and I just want something that adds another level of insight. Uh, and I said, thanks. And we moved on to the person sitting next to them. And they said, I've been a professional soldier in the parachute regiment for 25 years looking at landscapes. I want, you know, something that gives me another way of looking at them. And that was the moment I realized, yeah, this is not something to do with what we do as a job or our backgrounds in any sense like that. It's people who enjoy the outdoors and have a curiosity and want to take it on to another level. Yeah. And and I think that's in part why I was interested as well. It's also for me about reconnecting with the land and seeing the land in a different way and interacting with it in a much more meaningful way. I mean, you've used the word philosophical quite a lot in the last few hours. And I think there is something more esoteric and philosophical about it than just walking, actually appreciating what you're walking on and the infinite complexity of nature as well. And and that brings me to a sort of a broader theme of connection, because I think we've become very disconnected in many ways with nature. You know, we don't live off the land as much. We don't enjoy or interact with the land. Is that something you agree with? Do you think we have become, obviously in the main, quite disconnected? I think we have. I think we are victims of our own success in tool making. We've created technologies which are not just very effective, but quite alluring and possibly addictive. But I'm not a Luddite and I'm not a technophobe. I think GPS is amazing. It's made some of my journeys safer. It's improved most of our lives quite often when we're unaware of it. But my view is that there's an opportunity cost to technology. Mm. We should be aware when we're choosing to use it because whenever we're choosing to use it, we are you know, inevitably choosing not to do something else. Yeah. So to give you a, one example, we can choose to look at the land around us and we will hear things, smell things and see a million or more colours. Or we can stare at a a map on our phone and we'll be lucky if we see three colours and Mm. we won't smell or hear an awful lot if we're focusing on that. But there are times when looking at the smartphone is the most expedient thing to do. If you're late for a crucial meeting, which is going to have a big impact on your career, I'm not going to be suggesting to smell the wildflowers. But equally, if you spend an hour outdoors and half of that's glued to the phone, 
my view of that is you're banking, you're putting quite a lot of chips on the idea that we might have more than one turn at this life thing is my yeah. way of looking at it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So what exactly is natural navigation? You've touched on all the different aspects of it, but how would you define it? It's the beautiful art of understanding where we are and how to get to where we want to be. And it starts with very, very practical, effective techniques, finding north, south, east, west, understanding where water is, these types of things. And quite quickly, we realise that the pieces join together. We understand that the shape of the tree is telling us one way is south, but the tree itself is telling us that we're quite close to water. And we suddenly realise that's why we're experiencing the insects around us, which in turn is why we see the birds. The direction the birds are pointing is telling us the wind direction. The wind direction is explaining what we're smelling, which in turn is telling us that not is there only is the water in one direction, but there's a town close to that, mm. which is explaining why we're not seeing the lichens we thought we'd see in the tree behind the bird. I could go up, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. You should call it a beautiful art. There's a lot of science in it as well, isn't there? Yeah, I don't teach or write about anything that I don't understand the science of. And I'm heavily reliant on lots of other fantastic researchers. So my general pattern of working is I'm going out there looking for patterns, quite often looking for asymmetries. Why is this side of the tree different to that side? Why have we got these animals here, but not there? And I see that pattern. And if it's dependably, if it repeats itself in a useful way, I then go and see if scientists who more often than not have absolutely no interest in natural navigation have done some research that underpins what I observe. And if I can put those two pieces together, I get quite excited. I then go and look at it more. I then refine it. And then I write about it or teach it. I mean, a lovely example is ivy. I noticed over many years that ivy had some quite unusual growth patterns. It grows away from the sun for about 10 years and then towards the sun. The leaves change shape at this point, all sorts of wonderful things going on. But it took me quite a long time to notice all of that. And then when I thought I had the patterns sort of sewn up, it turns out the botanists have sort of study this and they have no interest in even north or south so their language is phototropism the plant grows towards the light Mm. i know that most light comes from the south so i make that small step of taking what i've observed and a little bit of science and creating a compass out of it yeah and weaving it together in a way that is easily understandable so the first thing you had us do is tune into the sun so top down so the sun first and then the wind and we did that, you know, we identified which direction south was from the sun and then the current wind direction. And then you span us around in a circle and, and asked us to point in the direction of, was it north? Yeah. And I was well off because I hadn't actually tuned in at all to my surroundings. I'd just come out the car, thought, OK, well, I hadn't thought about the sun on my face. Massive clue. And then holding out my hand to, to feel the wind. And then I tuned back in on the second go and then that was it. And I think that's why I came on this course. And I think... For many people listening, they may identify with this, is that we're just not tuned into our surroundings at all. And once you do tune in a little bit, you start to become, it touches on mindfulness as well. Tuning into your surroundings, you can really appreciate that there's a great deal more to life than the little microcosm in which we operate of me, my, and must do this, haven't done that, wonder what so-and-so is thinking right now. Oh, the phone's gone. You know, actually, when you tune in, the world, it just becomes... It, gets much bigger. <laughs> pheasant, what was that? Pheasant, pheasant uh, buzzing us. That was the yeah. jink we were talking about earlier. Right, you, I don't okay. know if you spotted out the corner of your eye, but it was travelling in a straight line, spotted us, jinked away, okay. which to somebody who can't see us because we're in the long grass here, they would spot the jink. They go, oh, that's where they are. Right. Got you. So we're just touching now on some of the stuff we learned earlier and the bird veered off as it saw us, which is yeah. called the jink, giving a clue to, right, there's something there. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me a bit about the books, Natural Navigator and The Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs. In those books, I've read them both and they are packed full of clues. But how can people tangibly start getting into this sort of natural navigation, using the books perhaps as a lead in, as I did? 
Yeah, I, I think you mentioned earlier connecting with nature and mindfulness. And I'm slightly a poacher turned gamekeeper in the sense that if anybody for many years sort of said, we need to connect with nature more, my honest reaction was it's a lovely idea, but it's slightly meaningless. Same with mindfulness, unfortunately, outdoors. You know, I think we all accept that the science is growing and there's a general feeling we should be more mindful, but that in itself isn't terribly helpful. So my work is all about things to look for. So I don't really write vague stuff. I write stuff like, you know, look for this gold lichen. You will find it on the south side of trees and buildings. Mm. It indicates south for you because it's a light-loving lichen. It also tells you where the bird's about to perch because it likes bird poo. That, to me personally is a slightly more effective challenge than go and be mindful and connect with nature because i think we're all resistant we are you know in our own ways we are all individual characters we all have our own ideas and i also try and avoid words like should and ought i'm not always successful but i think if you say somebody you really should spend more time outdoors there's a very natural human reaction to silently say no Mm. whereas if you don't use those words and you put it differently, you say something like you can find north or south using puddles. You get more puddles on the south side of tracks than the north side of tracks. Mm. You get a slightly different reaction. People go, I might just go and have a look for that. Yeah. And so that's what my books are doing. And I always follow that principle that a reader is entitled to say, so what? You know, points have to be strong enough and interesting enough and practical enough initially to get over that bump of our very natural and normal cynicism. You know, I imagine people who were not tempted by this stuff going, that's not for me. So what? You know, I'm just not up for that. You know, so most of my work early on is, is getting people over that to the point where they can't resist looking for it. And then we can move slightly more towards the, the broader side where it becomes a bit more philosophical. Yeah. And talk to us more about that broader side. Well, it wasn't something I searched for. It's something that I found myself having wandered into. Is I noticed that I was, I've mentioned how natural navigation is it's about the rocks. It's, it's about the weather. It's about all these different things. A lot of ologies, frankly. And what I noticed was that I was researching. I find it very hard to stay in one area. I don't want to just learn about, you know, the alarm call of that bird, for example, mm. I, you know, the next hour, I, I want to be understanding why that cloud shape is, is the way it is. Oh, it's because it's over the tarmac of Heathrow. Oh, so that's an airport shaped cloud. Oh, okay. And the next day, something different. And then what happens? That's all very practical. And then what happens is you start to notice these pieces of the jigsaw touch each other and then nothing actually happens in isolation. And that to me is an exhilarating euphoric moment because we start to appreciate that nothing is random, everything is connected. Those two things on their own start to sound vague, but we start to say, okay, that plant is telling me that the rocks here are chalk. That is telling me that despite there being heavy rain, the rivers won't rise very high. It's also telling me these are the plants that I can find that I can eat. These are the plants that I'll find that are poisonous. These are the butterflies that I should expect. This is, you know, a plant can tell you what type of bridge you're going to find around the corner. You know, in short country, you get low bridges. You know, so you're going from plant to rock to bridge type. And to be honest, the examples are infinite and trying to take it all on is not really the aim. We just start with these small pieces, jigsaws, you know, quite a nice way of looking at it. We put three or four pieces down. The picture's not terribly interesting. We put three or four more down. We start to get a a better. And just suddenly there's a piece we put down. It might be, you know, the way a, a deer's behaving. Yeah, that's the piece you put down and just suddenly you just get this glimpse of the whole picture. And it is it's a yeah, it's a powerful moment. Yeah, it's all very interconnected, which is my 
own personal philosophy about health and it you know everything is very interconnected how you sleep will affect your mental health your energy body composition or digestion fitness a methodology that we call the six signals a few weeks ago i had shan nix jones on the show who runs a goat farm called chuckling goat in the business so they make goat milk kefir goat milk soaps lotions and so on and she was talking about an ecosystem an ecosystem that the gut basically is based on and she was talking about yellowstone park when i think it was back in 40 years ago or something 50 years ago they wanted to address the number of wolves so they invited everyone do you know this story yeah, yeah, yeah. invited everyone to come in and shoot the wolves anyone who wanted, wanted to come and have a crack at them and that then threw out the population of deer which threw out the population of something else and all the way down to the microcosms in the streams were affected by the wolves so they actually decided to bring them back in and the ecosystem balanced out over a period of years and it's just understanding that fragile connection between everything in life from nature, you know, into these ecosystems out in the parks, to the ecosystems within our own guts. It's all interconnected. And I think if we can get our heads around that idea of interconnected health yeah. um, and how you can experience that and how see that mirrored back in nature, I think is fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree with the, the interconnections. And I think most of us statistically spend most of our time in cities. And it's, there's a slight temptation to think that this isn't relevant in cities. But the philosophy is... You know, if you're totally lost in a city you don't know, go against the flow of people in the morning or with the flow of people late in the day and you'll find a station. Yeah. If you still haven't found what you want, just watch the way people cross the road. Locals don't pause in the way that strangers to a town do. Mm. So you start putting all those pieces together. You actually get a feel for how to find something in a city, which is just using the techniques that our ancestors used to use and indigenous people do today yeah. to the point where we start to notice that you know, the cafes and restaurants are all on one side of the street because that's where the sunlight is. So, you know, all of this, you know, the, we go to the same place for lunch each day. We think we're totally in control, but actually the elements and the geography have, have mm. made most of our decisions for us. Yeah. So the shopkeepers have thought about footfall and, and where the light falls and everything else. And the ones yeah. that don't go slowly bust. Yeah. So the book is absolute, or well, both books, but I'm thinking particularly of the Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Science is, is how many clues in there? 850. 850 clues. <laughs> so, yeah, you take them one at a time, which is what we've done today. We've probably covered, what, 15, 20? 20 uh, I'd say more individual examples, but maybe yeah. maybe a dozen principles. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which has been it's been fascinating. Do you ever encounter resistance to this? Because I'm just anticipating someone listening, thinking, well, I'm a busy professional, and I'm a lawyer, or I'm a CEO, an entrepreneur, or whatever. I don't have time for this stuff. What would you say to that? I would say I'm not going to argue that any of this is necessary in a survival sense, which is an angle a lot of people come from. But almost all of what we would consider the interesting aspects of life could be considered unnecessary. Mm. So necessity and interest are, are not the same at all. If if somebody gets a piece of paper and a pen and writes down the three things they like to do most in their spare time, they'll probably find they're unnecessary. So it's more about what we find philosophically and physically rewarding. I'm a great believer that our brain has evolved to solve puzzles. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of the most successful uh, TV, film and book formats are based on this idea of deduction. You know, crime is one of the most successful literary genres. You watch TV, there is, it's not a formula, but there is form. There's a way of exciting our brain. We pose puzzles and dilemmas and then try and solve them. And the reason we find all of that satisfying is because our brain evolved to solve nature's puzzles. It's mm. not that long ago. It's only approximately 10,000 years ago that we stopped moving around. And prior to that, whether we got to the end of a day or not was all about solving nature's puzzles. Mm. And in genetic terms, there's really no difference. So nothing's changed in a biological sense. We are puzzle-solving creatures. And 
at that point, it's an entirely personal choice. It's not for me to say you will have more fun doing a crossword Sudoku or reading a crime novel. But if there's a part of you that enjoys the idea of fresh air in the outdoors, then what I'm doing is trying to give you the tools to solve the puzzles and not because you have to, not because you need to, but because your brain likes doing it and it's fun. It is really fun, yeah. <laughs> to sort of, you know, to understand how you can navigate using tree stumps and the direction of branches. And it is, it's really fun. Where do you learn from now? You mentioned Borneo a few times this afternoon. You know, how often do you do those trips with Indigenous people and what do you pick up from that? My whole approach is about learning. So I'm learning every day. If I ever thought I'd stop learning, then I might not be able to continue, but that's pretty unlikely. So my view is, is sort of naff way of putting it, but the world's a library. And if I can get the answers I want, in a book, I'll look in a book. If I can get them on the internet, I'll get them on the internet. If I find them in an actual physical library, I'll find them in a library. Every now and then there's something I can only get by going to the source. So I might have to, you know, 2009, I crossed 100 miles of the Libyan Sahara with the Tuareg. More recently, I went into the heart of Borneo and did an expedition with the Penan Dayak there. But if I'm honest, that's a minority of instances. Most of the time, it's observation close to home because for me, this is a daily practice. I don't find crossing a mile of complete wilderness, you know, automatically more fulfilling or interesting than crossing a mile of mm. British countryside. And, and quite often the opposite is true. You know, the Sahara Desert is absolutely mind-blowing in terms of the Spartan beauty there. But where we are sat here, we've probably got more species within a stone's throw of where we're sat right now than I saw in 100 miles of the Sahara. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it. Not just the plants. We're getting quite good insect life around us we as well. Are. At the yes, we're yeah. both <laughs> fanning flies and various other things from <laughs> this, our faces. This is just an example of how my mind works. I've noticed that they're alternating. They're sort of annoying me and then annoying you. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's to do with carbon dioxide because that's what, when we speak, we're obviously... With the speaker's getting them. Yeah, yeah I've noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've touched on books. You've just published another book. Just tell us a little bit about that. What's it called? Thanks. It's called Wild Signs and Star Paths, and it's taking the idea of outdoor clues and signs up a level. So they're not more complex. They're funny. In a way, they're simpler and more fundamental. But the idea is these are the things that our ancestors would have tuned into through practice in an automated way. What I mean is I now notice that there are certain patterns and certain clues that when we tune into them repeatedly, our brain takes a shortcut. And instead of having to do it actively, thinking, right, I must now look for this, our brain just does it. So you will have noticed a few times on the walk, I go, bird alarm call yeah. or something like that. And that's an example yeah. where we were perhaps talking about something else, but my brain has said there's something going on there. The circling buzzard is a sign that there's something below it. These are not complex things, but if we practice looking for certain things, shapes being a good example, if you practice noticing that birds of prey have short necks, there very quickly comes a point where your brain says bird of prey, even if you don't know mm. what it is. Because that's the way animals function. Animals don't sort of sit there and sort of get out a book or a pad of paper and a pen and go, right, we need to work out what's going on. They, they do it instantly. Mm. So my latest book is these, there are 52 keys, I call them, that you can kind of focus on, practice looking for, and they're effectively shortcuts to an indigenous type experience, as in sensing what's going on around you in a really fundamental way. Oh, brilliant. Okay. And your website is naturalnavigator.com. How can people interact with you? you know, what courses can they come on? And we've obviously done a three-hour course. What else do you offer for someone who's interested in this? I do think the website's a good place to start because I've deliberately designed it because I'm aware that people are tribal in terms of their interests outdoors. Some people find plants interesting. Some people find stars interesting. Some people find neither of them interesting. They're only interested in animals. Some people, it's weather. So what I've done on the website is allow people to go in through those channels. So you can go on the website and just click 
stars, for example, and it'll give you dozens and dozens of examples of things to look for in the stars. And I make no secret of it. You know, how I make my living is mainly through the books. So that's an appetizer. And if you want to take it to the next level in the books, I'm pretty honest on the website. There's a lot of good stuff worth exploring, but yeah. the, but the really good stuff's in the books. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> that, that, otherwise it'd be my living. Yeah. yeah. Well, you do give a lot away on the website, actually. There is a lot you can consume absolutely for nothing. You know, you won't know if someone's clicked on or not. It's just there as a gift. The books I highly recommend there, but I haven't read the latest book. I'll be honest. I've read the other two and they were brilliant. Thanks. And you get a lot from that for whatever it was. I don't know, 12 pounds. I can't remember. I just yeah. swiped right. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a newsletter? I do, yeah. You can subscribe through the website and... We'll link to it. Oh, thank you. And generally what I'm doing is updating people about events like talks and courses. And I lead walks as well, book information. And for a bit of fun, I try and stick a little puzzle in there. So okay. I'll put a picture of a constellation, a plant, an animal, something like that. And then there'll be a couple of teaser questions just to get that puzzle solving, uh, okay, get those juices I'll, I'll flowing. check that out, yeah. And lastly, as I'm conscious of time, we're coming up to the end, but what, what's your big vision for your own life? What are your hopes and aspirations? Where do you want to get to? I think with each passing year, I've become less worried about grand plans. I think mm. like a lot of people, I, I think my 20s were pretty scary personally in that sense. I thought that there's, you know, perhaps there was a manual people had that I hadn't been given. And I, I had that slightly scary combination of a bit of ambition and a, an awful lot of energy, uh, a fair few ideas, quite a lot of insecurity, this lethal cocktail that uh, I know is not unique to me, that most of us experience it some point in our life and so the temptation is kind of think well i must have this incredible thing that i'm going to get to and you know mm. and yeah that, that did lead to, to one or two interesting things particularly expeditions and stuff but now for me it's i honestly just want to put my head on the pillow feeling that i've learned and experienced that day yeah. um and that's that's a good feeling if i've got a a few hours fresh air a bit of exercise and a slightly better understanding of the world the nature, the people and everything like that. And that's a big enough goal for me at the moment. Yeah. I think what you're doing is powerful because you're essentially teaching people to get out of self and to be more mindful and aware of other things that are going on. I think that that's powerful because for a lot of people, particularly thinking around mental health, but just busy, stressed people, to take you out of self, you're looking at something else and focusing on how that interrelates with everything else in the environment rather than what's going on in your head is a very powerful thing. So brilliant. Well, the website is naturalnavigator.com. We'll link to everything we've talked about in the show notes. And Tristan, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Leanne. Pleasure. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com, and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone who you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.